2020, right? And so when I say unique week, you guys probably aren't surprised by that, <laughs> if we're honest. Uh, but man, just that windstorm that came through this past week, and I'm uh, so thankful that you all were able to make it out. Uh, I don't know you guys' stories and the devastation that came with that for you guys this week, but just know that you're, you're being prayed for. Um, you guys are being prayed for. And so, uh, yeah, I, I pray that things going going really, really well with that. So you guys have been, well, before I jump into this real quick, last time I was up here, um, I shared some personal story with you. I, I don't think I've introduced my wife yet. When I've been up here before, my wife, Trisha, she's sitting over here uh, in this red shirt. Stand up for him, babe, real quick. <laughs> and we're going to give her a round of applause, too. That's right. We're going to give her a round of applause. Um, so I shared last time I talked here that we're actually expecting another child. We have three baby girls right now, and I've been super unashamed about saying I want me a baby boy. Uh, and so we're actually having a baby boy <laughs> coming in, coming in January, coming January 2021. So I'm super excited about that. Okay, now we can get into it. Uh, you guys have been going through a series in Genesis, so go ahead and get your Bibles out. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 38 and 39 uh, today. And so... Man, what I want to talk about today, Josh kind of hit on it a little bit, is, is this idea that God works in mysterious ways, right? God works in mysterious ways. And often when you hear that term, um, for me especially growing up, I used to hear this term all the time in my, in my household, right? And, and often it wasn't used in a very positive way. I don't know if you guys grew up like this as well or if you may use this in this term or in this way uh, as well. But the way we tend to use God works in mysterious ways is, you know, we've been wronged by someone, right? Someone has done something to us or someone has done something and we've judged them as, you know, something's going to come back around to that person for doing that, right? And lo and behold, when it does, what tends to be the phrase that comes out of our mouths or, or the phrase that I've heard a lot growing up is, man, God works in mysterious ways, right? But we're using that phrase out of context, honestly, right? Because God doesn't want disaster for any of us. He doesn't want wrong for any of us. That's true of God. And so it's not so much the situation that the person ends up finding themselves in. It's not so much the situation we tend to find ourselves in when we say God works in mysterious ways, but it's the person that we're becoming. It's the thing that God is using that thing for, right? And then who we become on the outside of that, on the other side of that, God works in mysterious ways that way. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter the ill that has befallen on us. The mystery is that God is good in it all. And so in 38 and 39 of Genesis, we see a little bit of that. Um, in chapter 38, I'm going to kind of breeze through what this is saying here. So if you guys can look with me, this is the story of Judah and Tamar. Last week, you guys went through Genesis 37, and I'm going to hit on 39 today. And both of those stories, they bookend kind of uh, uh, this story of Judah, but Judah just gets sandwiched right in the middle. <laughs> and when we read it, it almost reads as like an interruption into the whole narrative of Joseph, right? You get in 37, Joseph being uh, uh, visited by God. He gets this vision, he gets this dream that he's going to be held up high and his brothers are going to be under him, and they're going to serve him, right? But then he gets sold into slavery. Uh, they connive him. They do him wrong. They throw him in a pit, and they see they first plan to kill him, right? They first plan to kill him. But then Judah says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's, let's sell him. 
instead. Or, or let's put him in this pit first. Let's put him in this pit. They put him in the pit. Judah goes away. The brothers take Judah, see this caravan coming through, sell him to them, and they end up selling him to slavery. Judah comes back, knows he's not there, and he's distraught. He knows his father's going to be in shambles. He's going to be grieving. So they come up with a plan. They dip that robe, the robe that his father gave, a multicolored robe in blood, and go back to his father and say he's been killed, right? And so there we get at the end of 37 that his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept that matter in mind, right, as they sold him into slavery. And so we get this story of Judah, and Judah in 38, he ends up going away from his brothers. He goes away. He's trying to start a new life, and he goes and finds a wife, and she's a Canaanite woman, and we know how God feels about the Canaanites, but he has children with her. And so he has a first son. His name is Ur. He has a second son. His name is Onan. He has a third son. His name is Shelah. And so to keep going with the narrative, what ends up happening is he finds a wife for his first son, Ur. Her name is Tamar. And so the, the, the narrative has it like this. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to try um, to narrate this part in 38. But what ends up happening is uh, uh, Ur is found wrong in God's sight. And so what does God do? God kills Ur. And so what happens is this concept of levirate marriage, levirate marriage, okay? And in that concept, what tends to happen is that the man who was just married to this woman, when he dies, she becomes a widow. And so the brother of that man becomes next in line. And his role, uh, to be honest, however you want to look at it, is more or less a sacrificial role in that. So Onan has to step up. He has to take that role as the widow's husband. And when he does that, what, what has to happen is that he has to produce offspring, not for himself, but for his brother who had died, for Ur. And so he ends up operating in this selfish ambition, operates with this selfish intent, and you can read it here for yourself, uh, but he ends up not doing that. He foregoes that in a very visual way, right? You can read it for yourselves. I won't read that. You can, you'll probably have to put some headphones in when you listen to it on your drive home, right? Uh, but that's what he does. It's, it's, he doesn't want to do it, and then God sees that as wrong, and so he kills him as well. And so Judah's seeing this, and he's saying, man, I don't want to continue losing my sons. He's only got three. Sheila's up next. He's not of age yet, but he tells Tamar, like, yo, hey, go stay in your father's house. Stay there until Sheila comes of age, and then when he does come of age, I'll come find you, and you can have him next. And so time passes, and, and, and Judah's wife actually passes away. And so he's going on this journey to Timnah to shear his sheep. He's grieving. He's going to, after he grieves, he goes to Timnah to get his sheep sheared. And Tamar finds out that he's going up to Timnah, and she realizes Judah's not going to hold true to his promise. He's not going to give me his last son. I'm going to be a widow forever. I'm going to be without forever. And so what she does is she goes up, she dresses up, she disguises herself as a prostitute. She puts on a veil so that her face cannot be seen. And Judah sees her, likes what he sees, doesn't know it's her, his daughter-in-law, and actually takes her and sleeps with her. And so long story short, or long story even longer, however <laughs> you want to look at that. Um, 
Tamar ends up getting pregnant. And when Tamar gets pregnant, Judah finds out she, uh, she's pregnant. He doesn't know that it was her that he had slept with, so he has no idea. So the goal is to stone her, is to kill her before she has birth, right? He's told. And so before that gets to happen, Tamar comes out and says, hey, I have these things. When we had, had sex, you gave me these things for me to give back to you in turn for the sheep that you were going to give me in payment for this. And so she comes out, and what does Judah do? He falls to his knees, and he confesses, and he says, she has been more righteous than I. God works in mysterious ways. She is more righteous than I, <laughs> right? One of the sons of, one of the tribes of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Judah. It is Judah himself, or top of the Israel, it is Judah himself. And here he is in this predicament, and it's not the evil that befalls him that says God is mysterious, but it's who he is and who he's becoming in the midst of that, and he's becoming closer to God. He's becoming closer to God. And so I want to show you why this story really matters. If you want to turn with your Bibles with me, turn to Matthew 1. And Matthew 1, really quick, um, here's a genealogy right here, right? And a lot of times when you read the New Testament, you come to genealogies, what we tend to do is, is pass over these, right? But this is, this is really important, especially in terms of what we're reading right now. Just real quick, these first couple verses, starting in verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then the two children that she was impregnated with by her father-in-law, Judah, is Perez and Hezron. What do we know about this genealogy in Matthew? That this will eventually lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go ahead and look at verse uh, 15 and 16 there as well. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Nathan. Nathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. God works in mysterious ways. Without Judah and the things that befall him, without Tamar and disguising herself as a prostitute, we don't get our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And so let's go to chapter 39, and I'm going to start reading here. I'm going to spend the rest of my time here uh, teaching on this. So verse 39, Genesis. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites and had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. So this statement right here in verse 2 um, is the epitome of Joseph in his life. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. The Lord was with Joseph. It establishes this overall theme of the narrative. It says the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. So those who don't know me, I'm a, I'm a basketball fan. Right? I used to play basketball, but now I just watch basketball like everybody else. Um, 
but, but one of my favorite players to watch is Stephen Curry. All right, Stephen Curry, those of you guys who watch basketball, first of all, welcome to the playoffs. It's really exciting. But Stephen Curry, actually he didn't make it to the playoffs, but anyway, he's a phenomenal basketball player. He carries himself around, if you know Steph Curry, with a Christian persona, right? And keep in mind, I said he's a very good basketball player, not my favorite. My favorite is LeBron James, just to clear the air. <laughs> but Stephen Curry, he carries himself around with this Christian persona. And what he does is, you see him, he'll shoot a shot, it'll go in, he'll make a nice play, and what's he do running down the court, if you guys know? He's doing this, you know, this whole running down the court, hey, hey, you know, letting everybody know who he's serving, letting everybody know who he's, who he's playing the game for. He's not playing for himself, he's playing for a higher power, right? And whether we believe that or not, whatever, it's, it, it is what it is, but it's the image of it. And that's important, I, and I believe he believes that wholeheartedly in his soul. But what he's doing here, you know, he's, 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 he's illustrating that he's not doing this on his own behalf. He's not doing this under his own strength. He's giving credit to his success. He's giving credit to his ability to score, ability to lead a team, to who's given him that ability. And it's crazy because he doesn't have the height and the strength of, say, a Shaquille O'Neal. And he doesn't have the athletic ability of, say, a, a Vince Carter, right? He doesn't have the international prowess of a Michael Jordan. He doesn't have the, the popular capital quite like a LeBron James. And when you look at him on the floor, it doesn't look like he really stands out amongst the others. My guy is 6'3", 6'4". He's a fairly tall guy in phenomenal shape. But compared to the average high of the NBA player, 6'7", right? Upward of 200 pounds. Uh, he's, he's rather small. But he's a beast. He's a beast. He has a couple MVP awards. Not only does he have MVP awards, but he's a champion. He has three NBA championships. Not one, not two, but three. His jump shot, I say his jumper is wet. If you guys don't know what that terminology means, that means that he just, he makes every single shot. He shoots at like a 99% clip. Not really, but that's what it looks like. And it's from anywhere. A lot of jump shooters in the NBA, they have this pure form. And Steph Curry, he can't shoot with a pure form but he usually doesn't because he's so much under pressure. But even when he gets it up with the pressure on him, the shot ends up going in. It's, it's unreal. It's unreal. And so when I was growing up, there's this movie called The Sixth Man, starring Kadeem Hardison and Marlon Wayans, two comedians. Phenomenal movie back in the 90s, late 90s. And so what ends up happening in this movie, Kareem Hardison, his character ends up passing away. They play on the same basketball team. Marlon Wayans is grieving this passing of his brother. And Kadeem Hardison, in the most comedic way this movie could do, brings him back to life, and he's a ghost. Encourages his brother to go back on the basketball court and play ball. And he strengthens him as he plays basketball. He's shooting shots he normally can't make, and it's going in because his brother's guiding him into the hoop. The other team's trying to shoot baskets. He's sitting on the back of the hoop, slapping the ball away, and nobody knows because they can't see him. He's a ghost, right? If you haven't seen it, go check it out. I don't know if it's on Netflix, but it might be. But this, I want to make the connection. This is what it's like with Joseph. Genesis is letting us know that it's not just him. Genesis is letting us know that it's not just us. The success that we have, the success that we perceive, the things that we do, 
Christians, we're not doing that on our own. We don't do those things on our own. The things that have success at our hands are not simply because of our hands. Yes, we're doing the work, but it is through the blessing of God. It is because of the favor of God. He is the orchestrator of all things. In verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord gave him success in everything he did, verse 4, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became, and in his eyes, in Potiphar's eyes, and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And so you see, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph walked with a different kind of walk. The walk that Joseph walked with was a kind of walk that only those with the deep intimacy with God can walk. You see, Joseph was a man of honesty. We saw from last week in chapter 37 that he was super honest, maybe even honest to a fault. Some of us are like that in here, right? You tell your brothers you have this dream, you tell your family you have this dream, and you're going to be raised up high and they're going to be serving you. Go ahead and try that when you go home today. (laughs) See what happens. He was an honest man. He was also a man of integrity. He was a man of character. Joseph, when we get to this story in the whole narrative of, of, of Genesis, he's the first patriarch that we run into that actually doesn't struggle with this sense of doubt, with this sense of self-reliability. He doesn't struggle with it. He's the first one. When we look at Abraham towards the beginning of Genesis, he struggles with this, this, this feeling of self-reliance when he's called to go and, and, and he meets God and he tells him, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Leave the land of your father and come follow me. And God provides for him. And even in doing so, Abraham struggles with this. I recall the story of when they go to Egypt, he and his wife Sarah, and what does Abraham do when he goes into Egypt? He tells the Egyptians that Sarah is not my wife. Sarah is my sister. (laughs) She's not my wife. She's my sister. He was afraid. He didn't believe that God was going to provide. He didn't believe that God was who he said he was or or was going to do what he said he was going to do. Right? He struggles again uh, in taking matters into his own hands trying to preserve his line through the servant that Sarah gives her. God told him that he was going to touch Sarah's womb and provide an offspring through her. And they take matters in their own hand. Hey, go sleep with my servant woman and begin it. It's not happening for us. We're old, Abraham. We're not going to get it. Self-reliance. Self-reliance. Isaac is the same way, the son of Abraham. Isaac is the same way. They go to the Philistines. They tell Abimelech and the Philistines that, yo, my wife, Rebecca, that's, that's not my wife. That's my sister. Jacob, the son of Isaac, he gives himself completely over to lying and deceiving. He's inbred with deceit in order to reach a perceived gain. It's inevitable. We all do this. We all do this. We all rely on our own selves in order to get what we think we want and think we need. Doubt, it's inevitable at times. But just as bad as doubt, or maybe even worse than doubt, is our frantic and erratic action, which is usually what we go to. Our frantic and erratic action But listen, if we desire rest and if we desire restoration, our response is not necessarily, and it for sure can't be primarily fruitful 
action, but faithful assurance. Not fruitful action, but faithful assurance. It's not this idea of putting things in your own hands and grabbing the bull by the horns, but it's a head down approach. Like Joseph, trusting and confidence that provision is the Lord's and the Lord's alone. That's the key. A lot of times we like to think that the opposite of faith is doubt, right? But if you guys listen to Christian hip-hop in the name of the prophet Andy Minio, he says the opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's when you have it all figured out. It's self-reliance. <laughs> self-reliance. We can't operate Christian in complete faith. We can't do it. We're feeble. We're sinners. We will fail. Only one has done so. But there's a faithful assurance that we can operate in. And that's where we have to find ourselves. Let me ask you something. Are you operating in doubt today? Are you operating in achievement? Or are you operating in faithful assurance? Verse 5. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. And now Joseph was well built and handsome. I love how there's no break there. We'll get to that in a second. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Sound familiar. But he refused. He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Okay, so at, at, at first read, you could look at this, verses 5 through 9, and you can just be like, okay, this is a wild attempt at adultery. Okay, just go ahead and breeze through that. But I, I think what we get here, particularly on verses 6 through 9, is this unreal comparison that's going to be really helpful to us as Christians today. I want to talk about this idea, this concept. In verse 6, you can see at the end of that, it says, he did not concern himself, speaking of Potiphar, with anything except the food that he ate. Except for the food that he ate. And so when we look at this word food, especially in the context of this scripture, I don't think that he's talking about a literary or a, a literal food, but rather he's talking about a literary device, right? This concept of food isn't food. Think about it. Say you're Potiphar, and you've received this servant that's come onto your land, and you recognize that everything he touches is gold. He's the, he has the Midas touch, right? He gets on your land, and you become instantly prosperous, he gets on your land and the other servants around and become instantly more uh, uh, productive, right? He gets on your land and, and, and everything just prospers. You witness on him as the blessing of the Lord. You invite this guy into your house and what are you going to say? Hey, hey, Joseph, I love who you are. Everything, like, yo, you're the man. 
some of y'all may have this person, especially if you're in some kind of management position, some CEO of some sort, or, or, or if you do landscaping, you run a crew, maybe. I've had this experience with coaching basketball, right? There's particular players on your team that you entrust more than others because of their ability, because of their perceived blessing they give to the team. With those people, we don't say, hey, come to my home. Everything I entrust here is yours. I'm grateful for everything you've done, but hey, don't, don't go in my refrigerator and uh, touch the bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich on wheat. Don't do that. Don't use my Starbucks caramel coffee cream, <laughs> you know, and pour it into your coffee and make it a little bit sweeter. Don't, no, don't, not, don't do that. Don't go in my cabinet and get my planner's cashews. Those are mine. Those are my favorite. You don't do that. You entrust them with nearly everything, and, and your food is probably, your literal food is probably the last thing you're worried about. And so I think what he's doing here is using food to talk about a literary device. I think it's a metaphor. And in verse 9, we see, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. I think this is powerful. That means the food that he's talking about is not literally food, but it's this metaphor for our appetite, right? You and I, we have these appetites. We have appetites, yes, it, for food, for drink, right? But we also have appetite for desires, for pleasures, and in particular, especially concerning these verses, sexual pleasure. They're good things. They're great things. God created those things, but he doesn't make them to be our God things. He doesn't make them to be our only things. This is super important. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says this. In the context of talking to the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth was known for its uh, 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 promiscuous behavior. And they would use terms like, or, or, or sayings and phrases like, yo, food for the stomach and stomach for food. <laughs> Right, saying my appetite, the appetite that I have, I, I, just, I just do it. I have an appetite, my desires to eat so I can eat. My stomach is for that. But they weren't only saying it for food. They would use that also for their sexual appetite. But here Paul corrects them, 1 Corinthians 6.13. He says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, Joseph, and Potiphar's wife. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The end of verse 9 in, in Genesis 39, he says, how then, after resisting this temptation, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? His appetite, church, had already been full. His appetite had already been filled. His appetite was filled with the Lord. The Lord is with God, or Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. We hear it repeated over and over again in, 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 in chapter 39. His appetite is filled. Don't you pray for that kind of intimacy with the Lord when this temptation that comes, with this desire that you have, that you say, hey, this is, this is just who I am. This is just my personality. I, I I, I got that. I'm an Enneagram 8, you know, so I got to 
We can't do that. The Lord was with Joseph. His appetite was full. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Let's move on. Verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, even be with her. He wasn't even in her presence. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. When he saw, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and said, look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home, his, her husband Potiphar. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. This is how sin works. This is how sin works best, right? In isolation, Joseph was met with the temptation day after day, day after day. Incessant <laughs> nagging. It never stopped. This is how sin comes after us. Your sin may not be in in a mistress like Potiphar's wife. Your sin may be in something else. You may have something in mind. But that is the very thing, right? We have, my wife and I, we have three baby girls. Um, one of the things my girls love to do is come up to us and say, hey, can I have your phone? Can I watch a show? Can I watch a show on your phone? Can I watch a show? Can I watch a show on your phone? Can I watch a show on your phone? Can I watch a show on your phone? That's the, res <laughs> that's the image of what this was like. And sometimes I give it to her. The other times I'm going crazy in my mind and what I want to do is throw away my phone. In terms of sin, we have to act in the latter. We don't give in to that sin. We don't give in to the temptation. We treat it as the nagging toddler when we throw the phone in the trash. We toss it in a glass of water. Right? We can take a lesson from Joseph here about responding to temptation. When Joseph is confronted with temptation, he, number one, if you have a pen, write this down. He reflects selflessly. He recognizes who he is. He recognizes the God that he serves. He recognizes the position that he's in. And he says, hey, it's not worth it. Number two, he chooses righteousness. He chooses righteousness. I love it. In verse 9, again, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He chooses righteousness. And thirdly, and possibly the most important, he runs. He runs away. Verse 12 says, after she said, come to bed with me, he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. <laughs> he ran. He booked it. That's how we got to treat sin in our lives. That's how we have to treat it. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. A lot of other translations say be alert or be vigilant. Be alert or be vigilant, right? I like to say stay woke. 
<laughs> Some of us don't like that term, but it's, it's biblical. Stay woke. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this tends to happen more or less in two different ways. One, it happens like the narrative in the scriptures here with explicit sin. Explicit sin and explicit temptation that goes against moral order. We can spot it. We can see it. We can feel it. The other way is implicit apathy. Implicit apathy that goes against the pursuit of the right thing, of righteousness, of justice, of goodness, of reconciliation. Implicit apathy. Verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden now, the same favor he had granted in the eyes of Potiphar. And so the warden did what Potiphar did. He put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. And I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to end right here. And in any other circumstance, being sent to jail could have been seen as a heavy measure. It could have been seen as a heavy measure. But in this particular scene, in this relation to what Joseph is being accused of, and what he'd done or hadn't done, the real punishment of that this exact accusation meant that Joseph could and should have gotten worse. The price for this type of offense in the ancient Near East was not imprisonment. It was not imprisonment. The price for this type of offense in the ancient Near East was death. And so in a miraculous, in a mysterious display of grace, Joseph's life was spared. Now that narrative got to sound real familiar. God works in mysterious ways, Christian. God works in mysterious ways. And so here, end with this question, Christian, when was the last time you thanked God for your second life? When was the last time you thanked God for just being with you, for dwelling with you, for dwelling in you? If you have that, I know you know what I'm talking about. If you don't have it, I pray you receive it. I pray you understand that he is here and he wants you. And you alone, despite what you've done, despite where you've been, despite where you're at, despite what battle you're fighting, despite what sin you've been attached to, you're, you're, you're chained to, or despite what prison you find yourself in, God is both Lord of the valley and Lord of the mountains. So Christian, here's my admonishment to you today. Press on and lift your eyes to the heavens. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful for the ways that you work that uh, we have no idea about. 
We're so thankful for the things that you're doing in the background that we can't readily see. We're so thankful for the places that you'll run to with open arms when we don't deserve it, when we find ourselves in the mud pit, Lord God, when we find ourselves in the prison, Lord God, when we find ourselves shackled to the things that we no longer want to be shackled to, Lord. It's you that comes there. It's you that dwells with us. It's you that makes your presence known. We don't deserve that. Judah didn't deserve it. They don't deserve to have their names in the genealogy and the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but yet you still put them there. Lord, we don't deserve to have our names written in the book of life, but God, you choose us and you put us there. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. But I pray we hold on to that and we never, ever let go And we truly know, we truly understand, and we can say with our brother, our apostle Paul, that it is not I, but you, Lord. It's Christ who lives in me. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.